This is Hitting the Mark. I'm Cindy Verbalin with Ray Carr, and we are talking with the one and only Jeffrey Mark about Ethel Merman. Her career had several trajectories. You can almost break it up by decade. The 1930s had Ethel Merman doing one hit Broadway show after another, introducing so many, I mean, the song list here, Life is Just a Bowl of Cherries, Edie Was a Lady, You're an Old Smoothie, Anything Goes, I Get a Kick Out of You, You're the Top, Blow Gabriel Blow, It's the Lovely, Make It Another Old Fashioned Please, Friendship, just one after another wow. after another. Also still appearing in vaudeville for the first few years of the decade, she was making musical shorts for Paramount. She was making full-length movies where usually she was the second lead behind somebody else. Two with Eddie Cantor, two with Bing Crosby, appearing on the radio, trying to be a movie star and just not making it. So as the, the decade turns into the 1940s, Ethel's career changes and so does her private life. Ethel was a conservative Republican Episcopalian. Having said all of that, and having telling you that she, she had wonderful manners, she knew which fork to use, she knew how to write a thank you letter, she knew how to be polite, but Ethel loved to use four letter words. She loved to drink, she loved to have fun, and did not believe perhaps, at least for herself, that sex needed to lead to marriage. So for much of the 1930s, Ethel was having an affair with a man named Sherman Billingsley, who was the owner of the store club. Billingsley led Ethel to believe that his marriage was over in name only, but he was there to take care of his wife and his kids, but she was his intimate wife and his store club became her second home. In fact, he, he bought her just all kinds of expensive jewelry. One was a diamond bracelet with one side in diamond said Merm. And if you turned it over, the other side said Sherm in diamonds. Mm. He probably bought her over $100,000 worth of really expensive jewelry. He'd buy her mice in a cage. He'd cater in meals to her dressing room. He would buy her fur coats. He, but one day Ethel is having breakfast and sees in the paper that Mrs. Billingsley is expecting a new child. Oh my. Oh. That was it. She cut him off. And she felt that to protect her reputation and perhaps his, that she needed to get married. And she got married to a man who was an accountant and it, it, it did not last very long at all. It was a mistake and she got rid of the marriage quickly. So in the forties, she doesn't have as many Broadway shows. She goes, she goes into the 1940s with DuBerry was a lady with Panama Hattie. And then she once again gets married because she gets pregnant. 
This is the man who was the father of her children. And she tries really hard to find a domestic life for herself. She has a son, Bob, a daughter, Ethel. And now, after a show, instead of going out on the town, she came home to her family. She lived in a two-story apartment on Central Park West that had 10 or 12 rooms. She was living the life of a big star. Limousines took her wherever she wanted to go. She did a little bit of work during the war to help the war effort. Not as much as many others did. She didn't tour camps and sing for the GIs, but she did record sides that were meant to be played V-discs for our men and uh, did one film, but was spending more and more time on her personal life. And then right after the birth of her son, Irving Berlin called her. She's still in the hospital. She said, I was still having gas pains from the operation. Hmm. And uh, Irving Berlin said, Ethel, I have your next show. You're gonna play Annie Oakley. And originally, the show was to be written by Jerome Kern and Dorothy Fields. Jerome Kern was even as much or more than the Gershwins and Cole Porter, the dean of the American Broadway musical. Problem was that he died walking the streets of New York one day. And it's like, oh my gosh, we've lost Jerome Kern. With whom could we possibly replace Jerome Kern? And they said the only name that came up was Irving Berlin. And Irving didn't want to do the show. He said, look, I'm a Russian immigrant. What do I know about the Wild West? And they said, please try. And in two weeks, he had, there's no business like show business. Doing what comes naturally. Um, the show was an enormous, enormous success. Both for Ethel, because it really proved she could act. She wasn't playing another one of her brassy dames. She tried to affect a Southern accent or a Western accent. She was wearing, for the most of the show, buckskin and dead critters hanging around her waist. <laughs> And effectively, the music told the story of the show. And except for one song, Who Do You Love, I Hope, every single song in Any Get Your Gun became a hit, covered by everybody else, and a hit record as the original cast album on deck. Nessa was in that show for three and a half years. But her marriage was starting to suffer. Ethel feels that her husband was drinking too much. And that's what led to the destruction of their relationship and himself eventually. It was felt for their marriage, the best thing was to stay in New York and get into another show as quickly as possible. And that's how Call Me Madam came about. So she followed almost immediately she, she got out of Any Get Your Gun in March of, of 49 and was in Call Me Madam in 1950. There's a wonderful story. In between, she made her television debut on the Texaco Star Theater with Milton Berle. Now, Milton 
had his style and they'd known each other for years. They were old friends. They probably dated a little bit. They knew each other. But she knew that Milton liked to put his hand on someone's shoulder and turn them upstage. That's where the term upstaging someone comes from. You're turning them away from the audience so you get all the focus. And it's like, no, nobody upstages that whole moment. So they did a little sketch where they were turn of the century people trying out their new car. And they were, they were in the, the old fashioned car outfits with the great big hats tied around your head. And, and she put itty bitty little pinpricks on her shoulder mm. where if he was gonna grab her, he was gonna be sorry. And he grabbed her and he grabbed her in the middle of a song because they were singing friendship as like the, the button of the sketch. And he lost his place because of it. And he let her have it. He began poking her in the eyes like the three stooges with two fingers, sticking his fingers under her chin, uh, uh, playing with her voice box under her chin, turning her around, dancing with her. Ethel was furious and hysterically laughing at the same time because she couldn't believe the gall of this man. And this is live television. They couldn't stop and reshoot. And they get to the end of the song and he's still going on and making noises. And she shoves him and says, it's over already. Good evening, <laughs> friends. Um, many years later after this, I was having lunch with Milton at the Friars Club. And I asked him, you know, how did this all happen? And he, he reassured me the story. I said, but how do you know about this? I said, I have a copy of the show. He says, I don't. I said, you do now. And that's how Milton Berle and I became friends. Because Bolton loved people who knew about show business. If you knew the business, he wanted to talk with you. And uh, this leads Ethel into going into Call Me Madam. And that's where her marriage unravels. Uh, she and her husband separate. And she begins dating the man who was the president of Continental Airlines. They begin to have an affair. She divorces her husband, marries him, and gives up her apartment and moves herself lock, stock, and barrel to Colorado, where he was stationed, because that's where Continental Airlines is. And she decided no more Broadway shows. She was only going to do television and films. That was her life. Yeah, that, that didn't work. Uh, Call Me Madam, as a film, was a huge success. Uh, she won a Golden Globe Award for it, for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy. And she felt, that's it. 20th Century Fox and I, I'm going to star. Well, she did one more. There's no business like show business, which is the most confused movie musical I've ever seen in my entire life. You know, Donald O'Connor is a brat who's in love with Marilyn Monroe, who's in love with him. And this Catholic family has a son who wants to be a priest. And there's this entire undercurrent that his being a priest really means he's gay and how ashamed we are because he's really gay, but he's becoming a priest and he's leaving the act. And this is a musical comedy. Yeah, it was a mess. It was a hot mess that <laughs> ran. And Ethel had a cold when she recorded the soundtrack. So she's not in great voice either. So her musical moments, although they're a lot of fun, 
her voice is wobbling and you can hear she has a little bit of a cold. Uh, they could have waited, but they didn't. Had it been another studio, they would have waited for her to be in great voice, but they didn't wait. So the film came out and it, it wasn't a bomb, but it wasn't a huge hit. And her, her musicals career was over. So she was living in Denver, but her husband was traveling, his name was Bob Six, was traveling to New York all the time. Gee, Bob, why are you going to New York so much? Well, because he was having an affair with Audrey Meadows from the Honeymooners. Wow. So Ethel said, I better get my behind back to New York where I can keep an eye on him. And that's how she got into happy hunting. This is Hitting the Mark. I'm Cindy Verbalin with Ray Carr. And we are talking with the one and only Jeffrey Mark about Ethel Merman. You're listening to Hitting the Mark. My name is Ray Carr with Cindy Verbalin. And of course, the man that always hits the mark, Jeffrey Mark, talking about Ethel Merman. Happy Hunting was a musical about the wedding of Grace Kelly and Prince Renier. And she plays a Philadelphia matron because Ethel, unlike most leading ladies, after Annie Gets Your Gun, she wasn't even pretending to be young anymore. She was very happy playing middle-aged women who had grown children. She didn't try and be Peter Pan the rest of her life like Mary Martin did. And uh, she played the mother who wasn't invited to the wedding, but brings her daughter to Monaco to see if she can marry him off to somebody wealthy the way Grace had. And the guy she chooses for her daughter is Fernando Lamas. In the show, he falls in love with her instead. Wow. The people they got to write the music and lyrics, one was a dentist. The music is like they listened to every song she ever sang and rewrote them. There was nothing original. It was all, oh yeah, she sang a song just like this in Any Get Your Gun, or in Anything Goes, or Panama Hattie. But the biggest problem was her co-star. Abe Burroughs was a director. And they, you, you sit down, whether you're in a television show, a Broadway show, or a film, the first thing you do is sit down at a big table and you read through the script. And they read through the script, and then Abe began doing what we call blocking, showing people where to move, where to stand and directing them. There's about 10 minutes of this. And Lamas says, excuse me, excuse me. And A. Burroughs said, what's the matter, Mr. Lamas? He says, is this the way it's going to be? I say my lines to her and she says her lines to the audience. That's how Ethel worked. (laughs) She stood facing the audience. If she needed to talk to someone left or right, she would slightly cheat her body and with her, she'd open her eyes wide and look where from the audience they would be. She's not actually looking at them, but she's giving the impression of looking at them, but she's talking to the audience. And he hated it. And Merman said to him, Mr. Lamas, I'll have you know, I've been doing lines like this on Broadway for 25 years. And he smiled beautiful smile of his and said, oh, Miss Merman, 
That does not mean that you are right. That means you are old. <laughs> she never spoke to him again, except in character. So it was a very, very, very unhappy company. He would grab his, gosh, how to clean this up for Ray. He, he grabbed his oversized penis on stage while she'd be talking or singing to pull the focus away from her. They would kiss on stage and he'd wipe his mouth afterwards towards the audience where supposedly she couldn't see it. But of course, everybody told her about it. And she got him sanctioned with Actors' Equity for playing with his penis on stage and wiping off a kiss that was unprofessional and crude. Even by her standards, it was crude. It's one thing to tell a dirty joke backstage among friends. It's another to grab your penis in front of 2,000 strangers. You don't do that on Broadway. Stop it. And they find him for it. So it was a very, very unhappy situation. Can I ask you, Jeffrey, why didn't he just quit? Because in a Broadway show, when you sign a run-of-the-play contract, mm -hmm. to not be in it anymore, you have to buy your way out. You yeah. basically have to give them the money you would have gotten in salary so that they can use that money to get somebody else in who might not be as good as you are. And it covers their behinds. Wow. Fernando had been an MGM contract player and was very successful. Not enormously talented, but gorgeous to look at. And he could sing. And he was just old enough that it was reasonable that someone Ethel's age could attract his attention. You know, she played her age, about 50. He was playing someone around 40. And it just worked. But he'd been fired. MGM had pretty much let go of all of their contract musical players. You know, June Allison and Jane, um, Jane Powell and, and Peter Lawford all got fired. And Miller, so he, he needed a job. He was, he was a, a husband and a father and he needed to work. So he was, he was stuck. And Ethel was one of the producers. She was stuck. And there were two songs that kind of sort of became hits. Mutual Admiration Society and a song called Gee, But It's Good to Be Here, which you have to have Ethel Merman's nerve to sing because it is such an insipid nothing song. But it goes nowhere. And it gives her a place in the middle of the song to hold a long note. Hi, I'm Ethel Marmon. I'm here. Welcome to the show. But there's no other reason for it to be there. Uh, yet she sang it to, to her very last concert performance. There it was opening up her show. So she's unhappy at home. She's had this terrible experience. So that, that leads us into Gypsy and to why she was so strict with Stephen Sondheim. And it's during Gypsy that she realizes her marriage to Bob Six is over. And that her now grown daughter has mental illness issues. Wow. Her daughter got pregnant as a teenager, got married, and there was trouble. Basically the father had to be parent. She couldn't handle it. And uh, Ethel, although she had the wonderful experience of seeing how wonderful her parents were to her 
she couldn't pull that out of herself. Everything revolved around her being Ethel Merman and her next performance. And children and husbands and friends had to deal with her on her level when she felt like it, reserving her energy for her performances. That does not make for a wonderful mother. Did she love her kids? Absolutely. Did she love her grandchildren? Absolutely. But she and her career came first. So did that make for mental illness problems in her daughter? I think Ethel felt guilty about that. But the father of her children in the 50s committed suicide. And it's, it's felt by people who knew them that her daughter probably inherited her father's mental illness issues. Sometimes mental illness is passed from generation to generation. And um, Gypsy was an enormous hit at a time when she was getting a divorce and truly worried about her daughter And then the 1960s are a whole different ballgame. So during the time of Gypsy, Julie Stein had a Passover Seder in his house and invited Ethel to be one of the guests. Now, Ethel had really wanted to start a nice little romance with Julie because she knew he could write just for her and thought this would be a good arrangement for her career. But Julie preferred one of her younger co-stars and made no bones about it. I mean, preferred her personally. So Ethel shows up at Julie's house for this Passover Seder. For those of you who don't know, it's the story of Passover from the Bible. And there is a religious part to it. And then there are certain specific foods you eat in a certain specific order. And the religious part was over. It was time to eat. And Ethel takes her purse and puts it in her lap and reaches inside and in waxed paper, she pulls out a ham sandwich. Now, not only is it not part of the Passover dinner, but ham is pork, it's not kosher, it shouldn't be anywhere near this table. And Julie didn't want to embarrass Ethel, but uh, 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 Ethel, the, uh, the sandwich hasn't been blessed properly. She said, oh, really? And she made the sign of the cross and stuffed the sandwich in her mouth. When Ethel was displeased with someone, they knew about it. She made sure they knew about it. <laughs> Ethel was a pistol. Yes, she was. So much crap, you know? If she liked you, if she thought you were talented, if you behaved like a professional, she could be your biggest fan and biggest booster. But if you double-crossed her, or tried to upstage her, or didn't know your lines, or didn't give full out, she could be your worst nightmare. Hmm. You're listening to Hitting the Mark. My name is Ray Carr with Cindy Verbalin, and of course, the man that always hits the mark, Jeffrey Mark, talking about Ethel Merman. The show is Hitting the Mark. I'm Jeffrey Mark, and I'm here with my hosts, Ray and Cindy, and we are talking this time about Ethel Merman. You know, Ethel, really, that kind of performer belongs in Women's History Month. I'm glad there's a Women's History Month every month in the month of March. Because she was such a trailblazer as the best at what she could do, trying to be a mother. And 
somehow from decade to decade reinventing herself so that she was still the star she wanted to be. In Gypsy, she was nominated for a Tony Award, but she didn't win. Mary Martin won for The Sound of Music, and Ethel's quip was, how can you buck a nun? Which made everybody laugh. And it was actually Ethel's generosity because technically speaking, they were in different seasons. A season ends in May, Gypsy opened in May. And Ethel said, you know what? Don't nominate me this year. There aren't, there's no competition. I'll wait till and then next time Mary Martin came in and that was the end of that. But Ethel thoroughly expected to be in the movie of Gypsy. And that again, now I'll be a movie star again. Didn't happen. Rosalind Russell ended up doing a version of Gypsy that includes most of the music, but the libretto, the book of the show is very different. And it's not a satisfying film if you've ever seen the Broadway musical and listening to Lisa Kirk trying to sound like Rosalind Russell as she sings, like you wish Ethel Merman's voice was there because these songs were written for her. But as a consolation prize by fate, Ethel got into its a mad, 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 mad world. Probably her best film performance. She just wipes up, I mean, so many people I've known, Milton Berle, Buddy Hackett, Mickey Rooney, Sid Caesar, and she just like, every scene she's in, it's Ethel Merman time. There's a, there are lines she says, I don't know that I can do them justice, but when she says them, it is so, you choke laughing. The plot has somebody die in a car accident. And Milton Burrow playing her son-in-law, which is also a little weird because they were the same age, playing her son-in-law says, well, things like this happen. And she said, things like this happen. Because when things like this happen, people say things like this happen. And that's why things like this happen. <laughs> that's good. You know? Uh, she didn't make it up. It's in the script, but I can't think of anybody else who could have delivered those lines that way with that perfect timing. So Ethel began to do Las Vegas. She began to do um, state fairs. She began to do nightclub work while she was doing other television work. Lucille Ball produced uh, a, a sitcom for her called Maggie Brown. It didn't sell the network, but uh, Miss Ball did a two-part Lucy show with Miss Merman that is some of the best work either one of them did. They were magic together. Miss Ball had been a chorus girl in one of the Eddie Cantor films, which co-starred Miss Merman. That's when they first met. Vivian Vance, who was still on the Lucy show, had been Ethel Merman's understudy in Anything Goes and Red Hot and Blue. So they'd known each other about the same length of time. In fact, Vivian Vance was known because Ethel took her under her wing and considered Vivian to be her protege. So here they are 30 years later, having a ball, doing the same kind of wild, in-your-face comedy that Ethel had done on Broadway all those years. She fit right in to Lucille Ball's way of working. Very hard rehearsals, playing it right to the audience, always talking out so everybody heard every word. It was a, it's a, a great show. 
uh, today, there'd be Emmy Awards for everybody involved. And Ethel more and more was concerned about her daughter. She, her parents were still alive. They were in their 80s at this point. She had to support them. She had to support her son who was going to college. She had to support her daughter and her grandchildren. So she had to work. She couldn't just retire. And she didn't want to, she loved her work. They decided to do a revival of Annie Get Your Gun on Broadway, 20 years out. And they dropped the one song that didn't work the first time and Irving wrote a new song for her called An Old Fashioned Wedding, mm -hmm. which was one of his famous counterpoint songs. Like, you're not sick, you're just in love. The man sings one thing, Ethel sings another thing, and then they sing the two of them together. Mm -hmm. Ethel had done this in There's No Business Like Show Business and Annie, Again, now here. So uh, it was a huge hit, a huge hit. So big of a hit, it was only supposed to be a summer six week run at Lincoln Center. They had to move it to a Broadway theater. They had to take it on tour and NBC signed to do a special. Oh. Ethel shot herself in the foot. The day of the special, and they shot to be cut down to fit a 90 minute time period. And the audience was lining up to see the show. And Ethel said, no audience. And they said, Ethel, we've cut this to include audience response. That's why, no. She was not in great voice. And NBC was unhappy with her. It's never been rerun. And she lost what could have been a series of these things. They wanted to do Call Me Madam the next year at Lincoln Center. And because Ethel had been a pain in the neck the first year with Annie, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't work with her. So Ethel ended up doing Call Me Madam in summer stock to keep working to make money. And NBC, she lost what could have been the beginning of several Ethel Merman specials. It didn't happen. And as they get into 1967, things really go south. Ethel's daughter dies from an incautious overdose of alcohol and sedatives. Ethel was just devastated. The newspapers called it a suicide. Ethel had it looked into that the coroner did not think it was a suicide, that it was just somebody who did too much too quickly together and didn't mean to die, but they died because of what they ingested. Ethel was never the same after that. She, she wanted no more romances. Uh, her relationship with her son was strained. Ethel began to drink too much. She said in her autobiography that she had uh, not worked for six months after her daughter died. In fact, she was back to work three weeks later and, and worked a lot in late 1967 and 68 and 69 just to keep her mind off of her tragedy. And she had all of these mouths to feed. In 1970, her mother had a stroke. And Ethel was offered the opportunity to go into Hello Dolly. Ethel had been the original Dolly in mind when Jerry Herman wrote the show. 
And they came to her while she was touring in Gypsy, as her marriage had fallen apart, while her daughter wasn't doing well. She said, no, no more long runs. This is not the right time of my life for this. And my friend Carol Channing got the part and made history with it. Hooray for everybody. But when they signed Carol, Jerry Herman took two songs out of the show. He said, only Ethel Merman can sing these. So no more. They said to her, would you close Dolly? If you come in and work three months for us, David Merrick said this to her, we can make Hello Dolly the longest running musical in Broadway history. And Ethel said, I don't want to do a carbon copy of everybody else. He said, you don't have to. And she said, what happened to those two songs? And they added those two songs back into the show for her. And she slowed down a couple of the others. So the Ethel Merman version of Hello, Dolly ran a half hour longer, 15 minutes longer for the songs and 15 minutes longer for all the applause she got every time she opened her mouth because she was Ethel Merman. And she did it for nine months and loved it. But that was her Broadway swan song. She, she never did a Broadway musical after that. Um, Which songs did they add back in? They did a song, a, a ballad called Love Look in My Window. Okay. Which was rewritten and became Time Heals Everything for Mac and Mabel. But the other song, World Take Me Back, was in the first act, uh, right after It Takes a Woman. And every Ethel Merman song you can ever think of, this one is so powerful, talking about going back into life again after being a widow and not wanting to live hand to mouth anymore. And the end of this, I won't, I won't sing this. It's, I, don't, I don't have any accompaniment for it, but you know, my step has a spring and a drive. I'm suddenly young and alive, you wonderful world. And then she holds these three huge, take me back again. And the audience is unscrewing the furniture. They're so hysterical watching her perform this thing. And she was wonderful in it. She was a wonderful dolly. Again, it allowed her to act, not just sing and not just be funny, but really act. And she was wonderful in it. And that's the first time I met her was backstage uh, as a youngster. And I, I, no one was there for whatever reason. And I walked her to her car and opened her limousine for her. And she looked down at me, you could see very tired, very drained of energy. Thanks kid. That was the first time I met her. Hmm. This is Hitting the Mark. I'm Cindy Verbalin with Ray Carr. And we are talking with the one and only Jeffrey Mark about Ethel Merman. <laughs> 